Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Wednesday, December the 9th. Today, Health Canada approved Pfizer's vaccine for use. And so we've got some questions for Dr. Isaac Bogosh on the COVID-19 vaccine. That's coming up in the program. We'll also be talking with Adam Oldfield about Facebook's decision to enforce new rules to prevent discrimination in advertising. But first, we heard Dr. Kurji on the morning show with uh, Mike Stafford, and he was talking about how York Region's cases are moving up. They are climbing, and there are renewed calls for York to move into lockdown. So that's something to keep in mind. But it's not just York that we have to keep in mind. It's everywhere, especially uh, when we hear the news that uh, recent polls suggested that 30%, almost 30% of Ontarians plan to visit friends or family during the Christmas holidays, and 8% say they will be traveling to visit relatives in other communities. So yesterday, the Ontario Hospital Association released a plea to the public ahead of the holiday season to rethink and cancel any holiday gatherings. Here to talk about it, the uh, president-elect of the OMA, Dr. Adam Kassam. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Good morning, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, I think it's important to talk about who you represent, the OMA. The Ontario okay. Medical Association, and we represent 43,000 physicians across the province. And so that spans anywhere from Windsor to Waterloo, from Toronto to Timmins, and we represent the physicians on the front lines of, of our healthcare system. Okay, so what specifically is the plea of doctors and frontline healthcare workers over the holiday season? Absolutely. And so this is a quite a unique plea, Kelly, because it's actually a joint plea from the Ontario Medical Association, the Ontario Hospital Association, the RNAO, and a number of other healthcare organizations. And our plea is very simple. And as you alluded to earlier in the segment, heading into this holiday season, we really implore uh, Ontarians across the province to, to try and, as best as they can, gather and celebrate with only members of their own household. And so as you sort of uh, described where there were, there were sort of this, this push for people to either celebrate with others and other individuals or go to a different region, we really, we really implore the public to hold, hold those gatherings only with members of their own household. Are you being strategic with your language? Because uh, I heard you say as best as they can. I mean, it's not hard for people to say we're staying under one roof and we're not going to travel. Uh, but I was reading an interesting article about guilt and shame and how it doesn't work with people, especially during a pandemic, and how uh, it's sort of like they they compared it to a cheating spouse that gets caught cheating and are um, called on it. And because of that, they say, well, you're just going to make me cheat more. Well, what I'd say to that, Kelly, is that I think that we've been dealing with this for eight months. And I know that people are tired. I'm tired. Uh, this whole thing sucks. And there's no way of, of really saying that in, in any sort of polished way. I think that a lot of us are fatigued. And, you know, I think that we are starting to, to, to see some of that light at the end of the tunnel with the, the recent news about the vaccines, which we're encouraged by. But we still have a ways to go before everyone's vaccinated and, 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 and we're able to perhaps return to a sense of normalcy. And so what, we're, what, we're, what we know right now is that the numbers in the hospitals are rising. So we have close to 220 patients across the provinces, across the province in the ICU. We know that there are about 800 cases across the province right now that are hospitalized with COVID. But it's not simply COVID. And what I think is important for us to realize is as those numbers start to tick up, we then have a situation where, for example, uh, certain types of procedures and surgeries 
end up being delayed. So surgeries are either delayed or canceled. So that means a hip or knee replacement is delayed. It means that a colonoscopy for screening of colon cancer is delayed. It means that someone who needs to get a mammogram for a breast cancer screening, that gets delayed. So it's, it's the impact on the entire healthcare system that we're concerned about as an organization and as healthcare organizations. And it's why this holiday period is so very important to try and mitigate the risk of that spread even further. How confident are you that you're that people are going to respond to the plea of frontline healthcare workers? And we've been we've been asked to stay at home and not socialize over the Christmas holidays by politicians. Um, mayors are asking for it. The premier is asking for it. The the um, prime minister has been pleading pleading with people to stay at home and you know be responsible. Why do you think people are going to all of a sudden decide? Okay, it's the healthcare workers. We've got to do this for them. That's a good question, Kelly, and I think that I would say that I have so much confidence in Canadians. I, I believe that we're a country of um, a deep value and principle, and I think that Ontarians and Canadians understand that this is a very, very serious situation. And I, will, I would like to say that over the past eight months, I think the public has done a remarkable job, generally speaking, of adhering to the guidelines, to making sure that they're doing the things that they need to uh, to, to help us win this war, as it were, and I think that what we what we're, we're kind of in that sort of end game, or at least the start of that end game. And I think that if over the course of the next several months, and certainly into the holiday season, so whether you're celebrating Hanukkah this week or Christmas or New Year's in a couple of weeks, I think that we know that um, if we're we're all ro- if we're all rowing in the right direction and together, I think we'll, we'll get over this and be on the other side of this in much a better in a much better state. I would say that there are other things that we also recommend. So it's not only gathering with members of your own household. It's also avoiding travel from a region or a hotspot area to another. And so if, for example, you're in the GTA or you're in Toronto or York or Peel, we implore people to avoid travel to other areas or other regions. We encourage people to, for example, shop locally. We know that the local economies in our restaurants, bars and businesses are so important. And so using curbside pickup or delivery options is a reasonable thing to try and try and help all of us get through this. We also know that this is going to take a toll on people's mental health. And, for example, I haven't seen my elderly, frail grandparents in eight months and haven't seen my parents in months. But, you know, what we can try and do is to try and connect with them virtually or or in other ways. So whether it's, you know, outdoor congregation at at a distance of at least two meters or six feet, that's important. Being able to make sure that we're trying to do the things that we can um, to to maintain our our quality of life as best as we can during this time, I think, is valuable and, and important. Dr. Kassim, can I just ask you to, uh, you just kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, your personal story uh, with your grandparents and your parents, you're not seeing them, you know, um, at Christmas time. Can you give us a a really good uh, anecdotal story of, you know, how the pandemic is affecting frontline workers and and why you're, you're personally concerned for your colleagues? Yeah, sure. So every day I go to work, I go to the hospital, Kelly, and, you know, I know that my uh, colleagues are, first of all, uh, we're gowned up, we're masked up, we have face shields, um, we're trying to distance between each other and trying to also take care of patients who are frail or elderly or dealing with other disability or other illness, which in itself is a challenging work environment. But when we go home, we have to make sure that we're obviously still um, trying to protect our families. We're not you know, I, I think we have a lower threshold, sorry, a higher threshold for trying to see people. And so, you know, even friends and family, we've been, because we're at the front lines, we're at risk of, of either spreading it or contracting it from our patients or vice versa. For us, we have a, we try and limit our exposure. 
to other people so that we're, we're avoiding uh, the potential for, for that spread. I think that there was an article several months ago and was talking about an exposure budget. And each of us has an exposure budget that collectively we would try and um, – uh, to reduce in order to reduce the spread of the disease. And for healthcare workers, that exposure budget is very, very low because we are constantly at risk at, in the front line. So I, I would say that not only is it um, the, the, the ritual of gowning up uh, and seeing patients, but it's also sort of the mental challenge and toll that it takes with not being able to see our loved ones, which has been a challenge for close to eight months now. I've heard that people are planning to self-isolate for 14 days leading up to Christmas so that they can actually see um, extended members of their family. Would you recommend that? I would say that I would say that assuming a two-week isolation period before a get-together is safe is probably not the best assumption. I think that, for example, we know that the community spread that we're seeing as a result of the case case numbers that are rising is quite significant. And so, even though that isolation might be helpful, I do think that it's not a perfect solution. And so, whether it's entering a store or another uh, another household with people who are perhaps not isolating, for example, that could get us into trouble. And so, I think it, it, it it's a reasonable approach, but it's not the perfect approach. And I think our 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 plea, once again, is to only limit um, your gatherings and celebrations to members of your own household. Well, Dr. Kasim, I really hope that what you've said uh, causes some of our listeners to rethink and maybe cancel their holiday gatherings that they had hoped for. It, it, it does suck. It's a bummer of a year. But uh, the reality is this could get a lot worse before it gets better. You know, the vaccine is hopeful news, but it it's certainly going to take a while before we are all um, out of the woods here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kelly, and happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and stay safe. Same to you. All right, that is the Ontario Medical Association President-elect, Dr. Adam Kassam, who is talking about the uh, letter that the uh, members of the Ontario Hospital Association released uh, to the public yesterday. Just please, whatever you do, rethink and cancel those holiday gatherings. Uh, Facebook is enforcing new rules to prevent discrimination in advertising. Here to talk about it is our good friend Adam Oldfield. He's our 640 Toronto tech expert. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Can you explain how uh, how this targeting advertising worked? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, when you buy an ad in any kind of social media platform, you have a lot of options pertaining to demographic, sociographic, uh, depending on what scale or what uh, d- deliverable message you have. And Facebook was, they've got very strict in regards to how they're looking at ads. What's, you know, how much you put on, whether it's too much graphics, too many words, uh, you know, and, and it's, they align it properly for obviously reasons that they used in the past because of uh, misstepping elections when it came to uh, the political uh, campaigns in the past, uh, misleading information, false information. So uh, this latest update with what Facebook is doing is now more or less a human's, uh, human right issue. And it's going to be interesting because they're going to be scrutinizing not by people, but by an algorithm. And they're going to put a little more scrutiny pertaining to how an ad may be posted and be reviewed. So as an example, I know from a job post, it's supposed to be open. You're, you're not supposed to be able to limit uh, an age demographic unless, of course, it's a, un, uh, a student uh, specifically with a job. So in this case, particularly with the ads, they've uh, identified that if you're going to say it's a female targeted ages uh, 25 to 35 and this job is available for you in uh, specifically North York area. 
um, those rules will overcome that and it will not be accepted. So, Adam, this was related to employment, not really products that are targeted to our feeds. Uh, it, it, I mean, they do have algorithms for products and other messages otherwise. But, yes, this is going to be on employment. It's going to be on housing. So if you're listing a, a, a rental unit and you can specific – I mean, again, we're talking about Facebook gives so much detail when it comes to data, uh, religion, cu- culture, sex. Um, literally, they break it down for the advertiser to choose and select. Those are going to be uh, – this is a stepping stone, I think, for Canada and the U.S. for that matter, that Facebook – may have to broaden its uh, demographic that you don't get the choice. You're going to have to be able to select uh, maybe specific age groups because of obviously age-appropriate messaging, if it's alcohol or otherwise, uh, not that they let that happen, but to give that as an example. Um, but they're, when it comes to a human's rights, whether it's employment, housing, uh, any of those, they're going to have to open up and broaden the demographic to not be limited. Okay. And so are, are a lot of people, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm not turning to Facebook for, you know, looking for places to live, looking for places to work, um, things like that. I'm looking at people's kids and their Christmas tree right now. You might not be the perfect demographic for it, Kelly, but actually a lot of people do still use, uh, probably 1.2 billion, uh, are using or involved in Facebook in some manner or capacity, whether it's Messenger, WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, all of these are, are what we're talking about in the face, uh, Facebook ecosystem. Um, and, and not to mention that Facebook's getting its fingers in a couple other little elements that will be involving advertising. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it is actually quite popular. I've used it with a few clients of mine, including one of my other businesses, and it's actually worked with great success in the older demographic. When I say older, 25 plus has been very successful. All right. Interesting stuff. I want to talk about something Netflix is rolling out. It's a new tool. It's basically, I I look at it as uh, Cole's notes for parents so they can, you know, understand what their kids are watching. So you don't have to sit through the show your kids are watching. This is uh, called the Kids Activity Report, and it will let you know all of the important things about the show that your kids are watching so you can relate to them. Is that right? Absolutely. That's correct. Yeah. And I like to also use this as a a bit of a here's Adam's conspiracy under the social dilemma uh, example with Netflix. Um, Netflix is looking for the same thing Facebook and Google do. All of them are looking for captured data. So this report is a transparency to be able to help uh, preteens or preschool uh, children to be able to get that algorithm and use that as a way to say, uh, dear parents, Here's what we know about your child. Here's the favorite uh, uh, actor or superhero they're wanting to watch. And here's a recommendation or suggestion that you may want to be able to consider as well. In my opinion, what they've done is more or less put icing over top of the data collection and said, enjoy your candy while I collect more about you so I can be able to data harvest more content about the children of our future to watch Netflix. So this, this looks like they're giving us something, but ultimately they want to take more. Oh, this is, like I said, behind this layer of cupcake, there is a very, very deep uh, 
uh, information of somebody in a board of directors going, how do we how do we gather data of our future viewers? And man, I, I can't begin to tell you. First of all, you build loyalty, you build interest, you build commitment. Um, and if we're taking someone from that level, and the parents are agreeing to it, though, Kelly, mm-hmm. this is the part that I look at it is as a mom and a da- I'm a dad, and I'd be looking at it going, yeah, I do want to know what my child's watching. I would like to understand what it is they like. So, you know, I can be able to know what kind of Halloween costume or what at Christmas would they like? Sure, that sounds great. How about you just talk to your child? Uh, Netflix getting that kind of information and using it. Netflix is a business and it's derived based on data. Same as Facebook, same as YouTube, all of it. So it's uh, good for them. And if you're a parent, you like Netflix and you let your child watch it, it's probably very advantageous. But the root and the deeper issue here is that Netflix needs data and will uh, harvest that to be able to better develop itself, but also to be able to gain revenues in the long run. It's a profitable business. I love what you just said um, about how you can just talk to your child. It, this is really taking it's it's being sold as this is a good thing because you can act like you know everything to your child but sometimes your kid wants to teach you and sometimes that's a great way to relate to your kid and, and form a, a a more deep relationship allowing them to be the expert you tell me about your show what do you like about it who's this kid what's their story it absolutely i, I don't think you need to read about your child in a spreadsheet with with pie charts um, I think it's, I think this is what Netflix is providing it. And they'll even provide you coloring sheets to make you feel like your child can be engaged while coloring and watching TV. Oh, I, anyway, it, it, it's, it's like I said, I think it's icing on top of, uh, something much, much more deeper. And hopefully a lot of parents don't look at this and go like, wow, that's so great. No, it's, I think it's just another way Netflix needs to captivate. And remember, there's a lot of demand for the, for people's eyes right now. Amazon, uh, Apple, everyone's fighting for that viewer. And only so much time is available in the day. Netflix needs to keep you locked into their system or ecosphere. I've been uh, looking around uh, on my internet uh, for, you know, I, I, I surf the internet quite a lot throughout the day looking for stories to talk about. I kept coming up with uh, people saying, but wait, there's more. And Apple was going to pull another, just but wait, there's more. App, that's my dog dreaming in the background if you're wondering what the high-pitched noise is. Um, yeah, there it is. There's a squirrel up a tree somewhere. Uh, <laughs> Apple just released an absurdly expensive uh, pair of over-the-ear AirPods just in time for Christmas. They're 800 bucks. They'll be released on December the 15th. Is this the wait there's more? And what do you think of this product? Uh, I think I think Apple has commented that they were going to be coming out with the uh, uh, the full covering versus the the nubbies that go into your ear. Um, I also know that in Brazil right now, Kelly, that there is a big fight with Apple, and I believe this will probably come up to North America, all the way up to the, uh, North America, being Canada, the U.S. That they are now challenging Apple that they have to provide part uh, chargers and air and AirPods within mm-hmm. the device of the iPhone 12. So uh, this is, uh, I think, again, one of those like race it to the, look what we're providing, another option from Apple, quality sound resistance or noise resistant uh, headphones that are obviously competitively priced as one of the most expensive headphones you can put on your head. Um, but again, I believe they're at the race of trying to get ahead of all the PR they're gonna be uh, forced to provide iPhone 12 buyers that have, are going to be entitled to a charger and possibly headphones that come with it. So 
that's my take on it. I think okay. Apple always makes a quality product. I think it's going to be great. And I'm sure that if I had to compare it with Dr. Dre and we all sat around and listened to the headphones, we'd all be like, wow, they're really, they're really good. They're quality. Um, they're probably very expensive. Um, and there's a lot of less expensive options that might give you the same feel. But Apple's trying to get ahead of the, a problem. And I believe there's a tsunami coming. Mm-hmm. And if you bought an iPhone 12 or you expect to buy one, you might be getting your free charger and head po- AirPods coming with it soon. Okay, let me ask you this, because I just got a little update from my uh, provider that I can get a free uh, iPhone if I sign on for another two years. Am I go- would you recommend holding off on the iPhone 12 and waiting, or would you recommend uh, not investing in that and going with the last model before the 12, which was I don't know what? The 11, yeah. The uh, You know what? The 12 is a, is a phenomenal model. I think if you're going to be looking at wanting to upgrade the, the iPhone 12, definitely, with, with all, all things Apple, uh, it, it's, it's, they're at a level now uh, that their chips are integrated with their new fo- with their new computers. So if you're thinking, uh, I would actually segue that with, if you're thinking about buying an older Apple computer, hold off. Uh, you know, make sure that you're going to be looking if you're upgrading your hardware for Apple, um, specifically the laptops or desktops, you want to be able to get the new M1 chip. Um, anything old uh, Intel chips. Uh, why? Because of the answer we just talked about, the iPhone 12 is going to be able to integrate seamlessly and quickly with a lot of the new uh, software that's coming out with Apple. What Ben Sir, uh, we're going to be able to see that it will literally synchronize and it will be seamless in the Apple world. Uh, and that's what it's really intended was, was if my <laughs> headphones or AirPods and my phone and my desktop, uh, I don't have to think. They just work and that's again kudos to apple they've always been able to make it stupid simple for people so uh yes i would say iphone 12 is a great investment if you're going to be looking at it but do not buy desktop or laptop equipment i'm not referring to ipads i'm talking about laptops folks and desktops okay uh, the imac all right i gotta leave it at that because we uh, are up to a news break with david bradley from the global newsroom in a sec and then we're on to hour number two thank you so much thanks kelly have a great day Cheers, you too, Adam. I wanted to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who is infectious disease physician and also member of Ontario's Vaccine Task Force. Hey, congratulations on being part of the task force. I haven't talked to you since you've been um, added to it. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Big job. How do you even have time for media anymore? Uh, I don't. I really do it mostly <laughs> in the very early morning and the afternoon because there's a lot of work. I, I'm still, you know, I'm still a frontline healthcare provider. I have a lot of patients to see as well, plus the duties related to this task force and other committees that I'm on. So it's, it's been a busy year for sure. Wow. I don't know how you do it, but uh, you are superhuman and a bit of a hero for many people and certainly do make a lot of sense when you talk about vaccines and you've really helped us throughout this pandemic. Now, today we're hearing about um, an allergic reaction to Pfizer's vaccine in the UK after a couple of healthcare workers received the shot. Why didn't we hear about this in the study, the allergic reaction? Yeah, it's a great point. So if you look at the study and how the study was conducted, first of all, the study enrolled tens and tens and tens of thousands of people, but every study has what's called inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. Who is going to be in this study and who are we not going to have enrolled in this study? And the exclusion criteria, one of several, is that you're not allowed to to get this vaccine if you have severe allergic reactions, especially to those components of the vaccine. I mean, like, let's just file this under common sense. If you're allergic to something in this vaccine, you shouldn't get the vaccine. Makes sense to me. 
So when these products were rolled out, it looks like um, people like the people that had the allergic reactions are people who carry EpiPens. What we're hearing that these are people who have you know a history of severe allergic reactions, including the and they, they carry an EpiPen like a, an adrenaline injector. So the NHS, the uh, regulatory bodies actually in the UK have said, you know what? Okay, good to know. We are not going to, for the meantime, we're going to exclude everyone who has, if you have a severe allergic reaction to something, and I, I think we'll see that defined as someone who carries an EpiPen, uh, you're not going to get this vaccine for now until we learn more. It seems to make sense to me, and I bet we're going to see Health Canada, the FDA, and all the other regulatory bodies come up with something similar as they look to approve these vaccines moving forward. I was reading about the side effects of uh, some of the vaccines during the study, uh, and some people said that after the second dose, they had headaches and nausea, and they were, you know, felt like they couldn't get out of bed in some situations. Do we have to worry about side effects? And, you know, they didn't last long, and they're relatively mild. Nobody died or anything. But um, do we have to worry about these side effects maybe putting people off the idea of getting the vaccine? Yes, we do. We absolutely do. The other thing we have to do is we have to let people know well ahead of time what they can expect and what the side effects are. This is prob. I don't want to use my words incorrectly, but the best way I, I think I can explain this is that, you know, it's, there's probably more side effects, for example, after the vaccine compared to something like the flu shot. Mostly people get a little bit of a sore arm with the flu shot, and that's the end of that. This one actually has, you know, some people, some people feel a little bit crummy after the shot. They feel like they might have a headache. They feel fatigued. Some people even experience the fever. It was all very mild. It was all self-limiting. But again, you have to know what's going to happen. We have to be prepared for this. And it was more common after the second shot than the first shot. But again, if, if people are aware of it and they can expect that, they can take measures to, you know, avoid, not avoid it, but like maybe you take an acetaminophen tablet. Maybe you say, I'm going to try to get the vaccine on a Friday. So on the weekend, I'm, I'm okay. Or maybe you have the capacity to work from home one day so you don't have to go into work wherever you are. Like, it's just important for people to tow this and plan ahead. Right. Now, the vaccine comes in two doses, and I guess the big worry is uh, that people will not come back for that second dose. How... Uh, I understand that the the province is saying that they are going to start a registry, make sure that they keep track of everybody that is being uh, vaccinated so they come back for for their booster. But are you at all shocked that we hadn't started this already? Um, there actually has, believe it or not, public health does have existing mechanisms for tracking vaccines and who gets what vaccine and, and, and stuff. So there is some pre-existing infrastructure through the through public health. What else, what's interesting though, is that they're really boosting the IT component of this to to better enhance that. And better, like, I'm not gonna be a, pretend to be an IT expert, but my understanding is we do have the capacity, but we can make, we can grow that capacity and make it better. Uh, that's, that's basically the extent of my knowledge on that front. But I, well, I think it's, it's clearly important. It's clearly important to do. That capacity that you're talking about, actually, I have firsthand knowledge of it because I was actually bit by a bat. I know it's weird. It doesn't happen very often, but I was uh, possibly bit by a bat or scratched by a bat. It was on me. And uh, and so I had to get the um, rabies vaccine. And it comes in, I think it's three doses, if uh, if yeah. I'm not wrong. And they called me, public health called me on the date that I was supposed to get each vaccine to make sure that I had indeed received my shot. So I, I just Don't wonder, I, that? well, like, I got to know the people at public health quite well. I'll tell you that. Also, I've got to tell you, well, that's a, like a window into 
the non-COVID infectious disease physician's life. Like, this is what we deal with as well. You know, bat bites and cat bites and dog bites and a lot. There's a lot of other interesting and interesting aspects to this field that, that aren't COVID-19. And, and sadly, you had to experience it from the other end. But it, it is Hey, crazy. listen, it's not the shot in the stomach anymore. It didn't hurt at all. It was fine. I was fine. And look, if anybody has any problems with uh, potentially rabid animals, I'm good for the next year. <laughs> so I can come and help out. I'm, apparently, that's my job in the family now. You know, you, you break everything down to pink and blue jobs. Well, the pink job has just become dealing with rabid animals or questionable animals that might come into our yard. Uh, let's talk about Russia for a second, if I could, because I heard an interesting um, little anecdote here that Russia is telling people who receive their vaccine not to drink alcohol for two months in Russia, which is kind of amusing because they do like their vodka, not to be too uh, stereotypical, but I know vodka is a big thing in Russia. Why is that? Not that, why is Russia, why do Russians like vodka? I think we can all, it's cold. It's it's nice. It's a lovely (laughs) drink, but why would they tell them not to drink? I honestly have no idea. And there's a handful of medications where you are not supposed to drink alcohol if you're taking you know, some medications. But I I got to tell you, I'm not too sure about what this is all about. I got to look into this a little bit further. It was a bit peculiar, uh, for lack of a better word, when when, uh, when when we heard that. Like, is that going to affect the efficacy of the vaccine or are they launching additional public health regulations in the, you know, in a dark Russian winter to help protect people as well from you know, alcohol, I have no idea what they're doing. Uh, but All right. I, I certainly want to learn more about that. I appreciate your honesty on that. So how closely is Health Canada watching what's going on in the UK with this Pfizer vaccinating, vaccination campaign while we make our decision? Are we paying attention at all? Oh, my God. I think the world is watching them like a hawk. And you can guarantee that Health Canada, and the FDA and every other regulatory body is watching the UK like a hawk as well. And, you know, I'm not, I can't put words in other people's mouths, but like, I wouldn't be surprised, Yeah, I'm not going to say if, it's when Health Canada gets the green light that we have some statements as well about allergic reactions. And I'm sure we're going to hear this uh, operationalized uh, in terms of, you know, who can get the vaccine and who can't get the vaccine and who should be precluded from it and what age groups. And I think I, I, there's, they've got to include a, a statement on allergic react people who have allergic reactions and and really formalizing which of those individuals can get the vaccine. Dr. Bogosh, before I let you go, I want to ask you a question that I asked today uh, of the president-elect of the OMA. And you know the OMA and the OHA are pleading with people to um, not have any holiday gatherings. But I asked because there are some people that think that it's a good idea to self-isolate for 14 days before holiday gatherings. I asked him what he thought about this, and here's what he said. Dave, do we have a clip? I would say that assuming a two-week isolation period before a get-together is safe, it's probably not the best assumption. I think that, for example, we know that the community spread that we're seeing as a result of the case case numbers that are rising is quite significant. And so even though that isolation might be helpful, I do think that it's not a perfect solution. And so whether it's entering a store or another, uh, another household with people who are perhaps not isolating, for example, that could get us into trouble. And so I think it, 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 it's a reasonable approach, but it's not the perfect approach. And I think our, our, our plea, once again, is to only limit um, your gatherings and celebrations to members of your own household. 
Because I know that basically the, the government's been saying if your kids are coming home from university, have them isolate 14 days before. What's your opinion on isolating 14 days before holiday gatherings? Okay, I have three points. Point number one, whatever the public health guidelines are in your community, abide by them. And most of them would say, you know, don't get together. So that's point one. Point two, from a medical, scientific, public health standpoint, just from a, from a medical and scientific standpoint, if you were to hermetically seal yourself off for 14 days, uh, yeah, and you, you're just not going to have this virus or, or transmit this virus. Like if you truly, truly, truly isolated for 14 days, I think that's the lowest of low risk scenarios. But as important as point one and point two, point three is that that's so much easier said than done. Many people think that they can really quarantine for a period of 14 days, but in fact, it's 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 a lot harder to do when you think about what your actual exposures are on a day-to-day setting. So I would agree with those sentiments in that, you know, in a perfect ideal world, yeah, sure, if you can truly isolate for 14 days, you probably wouldn't have any risk, but people actually can't do that. There's no immaculate conception of COVID-19. Like, people get it from exposures. We know that. Uh, and uh, and they might not recognize their, their exposures, but there are you, you're not getting it. It's not coming out of thin air. Um, the other thing, too, is I really think that point number one is the most important point. We should be abiding to the public health guidelines. And I think it's important to mention, because some people are going to run with this, that you have to uh, proceed those 14 days with a, a negative COVID test. Because yeah. you could be asymptomatic and you'd never know. True, but quite frankly, if you're asymptomatic and you, by and large, if you're asymptomatic and you do uh, isolate, you're probably not going to be contagious uh, after, certainly after 14 days. You're not, you, you just, your, your degree of transmission okay. to other people is going to be really, really low. That's why that period of time is, is, is chosen. All right. Well, you're the infectious disease expert. I'm not going to argue with you on that point. I, I, Dr. Bogosh, it's always a pleasure having you on the show, and I know you're incredibly busy, so I'm going to let you go, but uh, thanks so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Have a great day. You as well. That's Isaac Bogosh. He is an infectious disease physician and now member of Ontario's Vaccine Task Force. All around good guy and super busy. And that's it for the podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I do appreciate your time. If you've got some time, between 9 and noon, we broadcast live daily on 640 Toronto. Hopefully you can join us.